Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, our Gospel reading for this 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time draws together a couple of themes that have been present in our discussions over the last couple of weekends. The first theme concerns the context of our reading. As previously discussed, the parables of the two sons, the tenants, and the wedding feast are Jesus' extended response to the chief priests and elders of the people's question regarding his authority. The second theme that has come up repeatedly over the course of the last few Sundays concerned the tragic possibility of rejecting God. The parables of the tenants and the wedding feast were clear and heartbreaking examples of this. That said, this second theme, as we have discussed, is a two-sided coin, if you will. For, even as Jesus warned us of the dangerous possibility of rejecting the end for which we have been created, he also made clear that we have been created on purpose with a purpose. We have been created by a loving God for loving communion with Him. This reality became most clear last weekend in the parable of the wedding feast. Then, we saw that the images of food and marriage both speak to the fact that we have been created for perfect union with God, and that even the food we eat is meant to be a constant reminder of this. Our Gospel reading for this Sunday includes more questioning of Jesus, which provides Him with the occasion of impressing upon us just to whom we really belong. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. This ancient proverb describes the context of today's gospel reading very well. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, we read, Then the Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. To us, this description of the scene may seem mundane and inconsequential when it is a harbinger of things to come. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians are very unlikely allies. At the time of Jesus' life, the Herodians were the followers of Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great had made a deal with the Romans in order to stay in power as a client king of Judea, under the Romans. In effect, King Herod would continue to rule the promised land for the Jews if he ensured order and the payment of taxes. From the Jewish perspective, in making a deal with the Romans, King Herod had made a deal with the enemy. Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch, continued the status quo established by his father. It was Herod Antipas that had John the Baptist put to death and would later meet Jesus at the time of his passion. For their part, the Pharisees were no friends of the Romans. They were scholars of the law, who sought to interpret it for the people of their own time and place. As strong defenders of Jewish identity and the Jewish way of life, the Pharisees would have seen Herod's deal with the Romans as an abomination. The clearest evidence of this is how detestable the Pharisees find Jesus eating with tax collectors to be. Eating with tax collectors, who worked for Herod and in turn did the bidding of the Romans, was downright detestable to them. 
And yet, in today's gospel, we find the Pharisees conspiring with the Herodians in order to try and entrap Jesus in speech. This is a clear sign that storms are gathering around the Son of God. But very simply, the Herodians and the Pharisees are cooperating with one another because they see a common enemy in Jesus, who threatens the way of life espoused by both groups. Though it's easy for us to miss, Matthew the Evangelist is trying to impress this deep irony upon us through the question these frenemies, if you will, pose to Jesus. Buttering Jesus up with a plethora of words in order to disguise their verbal trap, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians say to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are a truthful man and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and you are not concerned with anyone's opinion, for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? In his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, St. Thomas Aquinas cites verse 3 of Psalm 28 to describe what the Herodians and Pharisees are doing with these words, writing, Wicked men begin from flattery, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evils are in their hearts. In effect, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians are backhandedly complimenting in order to try and force Jesus to respond. They are saying, You are an honest man, and you speak the truth regardless of what anyone may think. So, then, you should not fear answering our question. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians think that they have laid the perfect trap for Jesus. And the reason is that they do not agree upon the answer to the questions themselves. In effect, they have taken an issue that divides their two groups in order to unite them against Jesus. For as defenders of the Jewish way of life, the Pharisees would have opposed the census tax, while for their part, the Herodians ensured and collected the very same tax. The thinking here by the Pharisees and the Herodians, then, is that regardless of the way he responds, Jesus will upset one of their groups and thereby give momentum to a movement against him. Knowing full well what they are trying to do, Jesus responds to them first by highlighting their duplicitousness, saying, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. Matthew next tells us, they handed him the Roman coin. By asking for the coin, Jesus undoes the plot against him and transforms it into an opportunity to teach his listeners a deep truth about the human creature and God's intention for human life. In the Greek, the evangelist tells us that the coin was a denarius, which had the image of Caesar impressed upon one side. Whose image is this and whose inscription? Jesus asks them. Pride goes before the fall. So confident are the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians that they have trapped Jesus that they quickly reply, Caesar's. With that, the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees become entangled in their own trap. For as they said he would, Jesus speaks the truth. Then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. In addition to leaving his questioners amazed and speechless, Jesus' answer places the depths of his divine wisdom on full display. Many would find in Jesus' response some of the few words he has to say concerning politics. And indeed, there is something to be gleaned regarding the theology of politics in his answer. However, in what he explicitly says and implies by his response, Jesus is giving us a three-layered lesson regarding human life. On the first level, Jesus would seem to be instructing us to live a just life. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that we must live a life ordered by the virtue of justice, which is reminiscent of St. Thomas Aquinas' basic definition of this virtue. In Article 1 of Question 58 of the Secunda Secundae of Summa Theologica, 
Following Aristotle, Aquinas defines justice as a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will. So, of the coin, Jesus looks at it and basically says, This looks like it must belong to Caesar. So give Caesar what belongs to him, and give God what belongs to God. In other words, when it comes to paying the tax, live justly. Give Caesar what is his due, and give God his due. We can get to the next level of meaning by asking ourselves a question which has an obvious answer. Why does Jesus come to the conclusion that the coin belongs to Caesar? Because, as the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians say, the image of Caesar is on it. Okay, in Jesus' response, the coin that bears Caesar's image must be given to him in order to give Caesar his due, or, in other words, to live in just relationship with Caesar. But what, within this conversation, is owed to God? Nothing would seem to be mentioned. However, the answer is implied by the language of image. In Matthew's Greek, the word Jesus uses here is icon, E-I-K-O-N. This is a word we normally transliterate as icon, I-C-O-N. There are two important implications of Jesus' use of this word that will bring us to a deeper understanding of the human creature. For by using the word icon, Jesus is making a clear allusion to verses 26 and 27 of the first chapter of Genesis. There we read, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, after our likeness. God created man in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. The Hebrew for image is translated in the Greek Septuagint as icon, the very same word Matthew places upon Jesus' lips here. By using this specific term, Jesus has taken a very straightforward question and broadened its reach dramatically, and thereby given us an answer to the question of what is owed to God. For, just as Jesus says that Caesar is owed what bears his image, so too is God owed what bears his image, the human person. This is what leaves the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians speechless. They cannot believe that Jesus took their practical, everyday question concerning living the law and given it such immense depth. For Jesus has taken a coin and made it represent what is perhaps the most radical teaching of Scripture, especially in our own time and place. Namely, the human creature does not belong to itself in the first instance, but rather in its totality belongs to God. And therefore, has a responsibility within the order of justice to give God his due, the whole of their lives. This immediately introduces another question for us. Giving Caesar his due is quite easy. We pay our taxes. But how do we give God his due? How do we pay God the image in ourselves? In order to answer these questions, we have to ask ourselves a more basic one first. What does it mean for the human creature to be created in the image of God? to bear the image of God within them. St. Augustine of Hippo helps us understand this by placing three terms in conversation with one another. In question 74 of his Miscellany of 83 Questions, Augustine writes, Image and equality and likeness must be differentiated, because where there is an image, there is necessarily a likeness, but not necessarily equality. Where there is equality, there is necessarily a likeness but not necessarily an image. Where there is a likeness, there is not necessarily an image, and not necessarily equality. 
Why does Augustine feel the need to make these distinctions? For a couple of very important biblical reasons. The first has already been mentioned. In Genesis 1, we are taught that the human person is made in the image and likeness of God. But there is another scripture passage which complicates this teaching, and it comes to us from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. In verse 15 of chapter 1, St. Paul writes that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, using the same Greek word already discussed, icon. At this point, we have a bit of a problem. How can both the Son of God incarnate and the human creature be the icon or image of God? Most of the fathers of the church answered this question by saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, was properly spoken of as the image or icon of God because by uniting a human nature to the divine nature within his divine person, he made the life of God visible and present to us. Most of the fathers of the church taught that for its part, the human creature was the image of an image. In other words, we image God by imaging Christ in our lives. The Bishop of Hippo was not satisfied with this, however, as he taught that this understanding did not fully explain what Scripture teaches, namely, that the human person is indeed the image or icon of God. This is extremely important, as through this teaching, Augustine asserts that the human creature has been created precisely to make God present to the world in a manner analogous to the way the Son of God incarnate does. It is for this reason he introduces the distinction in terminology. So, let's look at these terms a bit closer. Augustine says, Where there is an image, there is necessarily a likeness, but not necessarily equality. Here, Augustine is holding Colossians 1 verse 15 and Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27 in a healthy and fruitful tension. The Son of God incarnate, as St. Paul says, is the image of God who is equal to God because he is God. For its part, the human creature is the image of God that is not equal to God. Alright, we have two of these terms sorted out. Now for the final one, likeness. Augustine says, Where there is an image, there is necessarily a likeness, but not necessarily equality. So, the Son of God is the image of God that is like to God simply because he is God or is equal to God. But what of the human creature that is not equal to God? How can the human creature be like God? Augustine's comments on today's gospel episode concerning the coin helps us out on this score. In Sermon 113a, the Doctor of Grace tells his parishioners, Just as Caesar seeks his image in your coin, so God seeks his image in your character. Give back to Caesar, he says, what belongs to Caesar. What does Caesar look for from you? His image. What does God look for from you? His image. But Caesar's image is on a coin. God's image is in you. The image of God impressed upon the human creature's soul becomes increasingly like God, says Augustine, through its character. How so? Put simply, we become increasingly like God by imitating God's life. Consequently, in his work, To Call Oneself a Christian, St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, If one can give a definition of Christianity, we shall define it as follows. Christianity is an imitation of the divine nature. The question then becomes, how do we imitate the divine nature? Just previously in the same work, St. Gregory writes that it is not possible to be a Christian, that is, truly a Christian, without displaying in oneself 
a participation in Christ's virtues, among which he names justice. As his rough contemporary St. Augustine does, St. Gregory is here interpreting 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, which teaches us that Christ is the power or virtue and wisdom of God with the help of Platonic philosophy, to come to the conclusion that in the first instance, God is virtue, and human virtue, that is, the perfections of human character, imitates and thereby reflects the perfections of the divine life. Here we must insert an important qualification. Theologically, Christian virtue is not the same as virtue spoken of philosophically. Philosophically, virtues are the perfections of human character that we acquire under our own steam and effort, forging within ourselves characteristics like justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude with repeated practice. However, theologically, while virtue does indeed come from the imitation of God, because virtue is in the first instance a term intrinsically related to the divine nature, human virtue can only be had by participation in God's life, not apart from God. Said differently, from the Christian perspective, the human creature cannot imitate God apart from God. In fact, to imitate God apart from God, that is, to try and live the divine life separated from God, is a basic definition of sin. For it would be like saying to God, I don't need you to live your life. Instead, authentic imitation of God only comes by way of participating in God's life through, with, and in the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. It is therefore by living in communion with the Son of God that we grow in virtue and become increasingly like God accordingly, as His virtues, or better, the virtue that He is, flourishes within us. It is precisely by harmoniously cooperating with divine grace to become more like God as we have been created to be, that the human creature gives God His due. For in allowing the divine perfections to shape every last aspect of its life, the human creature gives the whole of itself to its Creator. My friends, today Jesus turns a would-be trap by those who oppose him into a very deep and important lesson about human life by using a simple coin. Most simply, the lesson is this. Just as the Roman coin which bore the image of Caesar was owed to him, so we give God his due by giving him back the image which he has impressed upon us as human creatures. With the help of several of the church's greatest theologians, we have flushed this out by the distinctions of the terms image, likeness, and equality, and the language of virtue. And while these terms are indeed important to our understanding of the Christian life, we can get a bit more basic and practical than this. God, we are taught in the first epistle of John, is love. If virtues reflect the divine life, then, they must be understood accordingly. Once again, Augustine helps us out. He defines the cardinal virtues in the following way. Temperance is love preserving itself whole and entire for God. Fortitude is love readily enduring all things for God. Justice is love that serves only God and for this reason governs correctly other things that are subject to a human being. And prudence is love distinguishing correctly those things by which it is helped toward God from these things by which it can be impeded. We might think of the virtues, then, as the life of God in Christ Jesus, contained and refracted by the human soul. When we live out these virtues, then, we at once give God what is owed to Him, the whole of us, and thereby preach the gospel with our lives. 
For in seeing the life of Christ at work and flourishing within us, those around us will see a life that through Christ, in Christ, and with Christ gives all glory and honor to God the Father in love, which is the only way to give God his due. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.